Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show. Get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And today we are flashing back all the way to September the 29th, 2010, so a good 14 years ago. Originally, episode 520, this was the first interview we ever did with Chef Keith Snow, and he joined us to discuss Harvest Eating, both a company and a concept uh, that he was uh, promoting at the time, and still does. And Chef Keith became a long-term associate of the Survival Podcast. He's still around from time to time, pops up here and there. And uh, it, we are definitely better for the fact that Chef Keith Snow is part of the TSPC family. But let's hear from Chef Keith Snow the very first time that he was on the Survival Podcast. Again, flashing back to September 29, 2010. Well, as I stated in the introduction, we have the good fortune of having Chef Keith Snow with us today to talk about what he calls harvest eating and how to make it part of modern survival living. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Keith. appreciate having you on the show, man. Hey Jack, thanks for having me. It's it's great to uh, to be in in front of your audience. Well, cool, man. Um, a lot of folks, you know, out there may have not heard of you, don't know who you are yet, and wonder what's this uh, what's this what's this guy doing on TSP. So, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into cooking and and doing the whole thing online and and sharing with people your methods and things like that. Sure. Well, I um I actually grew up in in northern New Jersey in a, a pretty food-centric household. Mom, you know, Italian family. Mom was a big cook. Dad was kind of a gourmand. And we were exposed to really nice food from a young age. And I had a pretty strong interest in food, you know, growing up. And, and uh, we would eat out a lot and travel a lot and all that kind of stuff. And then when I was about 14, a good friend of mine, and at the time before that, I was the youngest of four children, so I had zero work ethic. And uh, I'm not proud of it, but I, I freely admit it. I had zero work ethic, never lifted a finger around the house. My brothers, who were about 10 years old, did all the work. So this friend of mine comes, uh, and he says uh, he wanted to go on vacation. He was a dishwasher at a local Italian restaurant that was fairly well-known, you know, comfort food, nothing fancy. And he needed somebody to replace him, so I kind of reluctantly agreed to wash dishes for two weekends in this place and uh this was you know I'm, I'm a little over 40 now so this was uh quite a ways uh quite a ways back and when i say i was a dishwasher i was the dishwasher there was no machine nothing and uh so i get in there and i'm i'm uh, in this kitchen and and my lack of work ethic really showed up quick and there's no way that i could keep up with these dishes and i remember the chef who really took a liking to me having to come over from the kitchen from the line 
big, you know, a whole line filled with food, saute pans going, and he had to jump on the dish uh, in the sink with me to scrub silverware and get plates so he could put his food on there. And he never, he didn't fire me. He let me uh, stay on. I actually wound up taking my friend's job. And from there, I, I started to learn to cook. This guy was a retired Navy chef who had opened up this restaurant. And this guy taught me a lot and really got, you know, the bug in me for cooking. And I wound up uh, cooking all over the country in North Carolina, Florida, California, Massachusetts. And the whole time I was cooking, I never planned on it really being a career until later in my life. I had actually studied finance and economics in college, and then I sort of cooked to keep money in my pocket for beer and all that. And um, one day I decided that, you know, I had a strong love of food and I might as well make that my career. So I started to work my way up in different restaurants. And uh, like I said, I traveled all around. I finally wound up as executive chef of a, a big ski resort up in Colorado in the high country at 10,000 feet. And we did about $10 million worth of food and beverage. I had a couple of hundred employees that were under me and 12, I think I had 12 direct chefs that reported to me and big, big operation. And I did that for a couple of years. And I didn't get burned out on the on the food part, but I got burned out on the on the politics and just uh, if you're trying to create excellence in in these restaurants and you're staffing them with 18 year old drunken ski bums from Kansas, <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult. And, you know, I remember one of the last draws was we had this one really nice facility. It was set to open on Thanksgiving weekend, which is a really big weekend up there, and uh, we had this really nice buffet breakfast and. And it opened up at 8 o'clock, and it happened to be my day off, and we had a new hire, and he was supposed to open up and get the place going. And I'm laying in bed one of the first days I had off in two months, and I get a call from the uh, food and beverage director screaming at me that the people, there's a line of people in front of this restaurant, and no one showed up to let them in. <laughs> and uh, just things like that, you know, over and over trying to, to deal with this, uh, you know, huge job. I did really well at the job, don't get me wrong. I lowered their food costs and improved their quality. But um, after a few years of that, we had our first daughter, who's now eight. And um, I don't know if any of your listeners have been up at 10,000 feet above sea level, but it's, it's like living on Mars. It's just freezing cold and super dry and kind of a, it's a great climate to ski for a few months, but it's miserable the rest of the year. And uh, I wound up buying a, a piece of property in western North Carolina, 12 acres of raw land. And uh, I did that in the summer of 02. I wound up building a really nice uh, Morton barn, and we had about 800-square-foot living quarters put in there and a, with a nice full kitchen and all that. And my wife and an eight-month-old baby girl moved into that little barn apartment. And uh, when I was at the ski resort, I had a lot of chance to do uh, food media and interviews and some TV, and I kind of enjoyed that. And uh, when I was in the barn, I had the opportunity to shoot a pilot for a TV show with some producers that worked on the Food Network. And uh, we wound up shooting it. it took about six months, and um, we had the thing produced, and we had it picked up, and we couldn't fund it. We needed a lot of money to fund this 13-episode series. And at that point, it didn't get funded, and the topic was going to be um, cooking with local foods and seasonal foods, which is my specialty. And uh, from there, I kind of, I was a little pissed off that uh, that we couldn't fund it. And I said, you know, the hell with these TV networks. I'm going to take my, my show to the Internet. So I put harvesteating.com up. And, and uh, at first, it was just text-based. I started 
sharing my recipes, and we had forums, and uh, a lot has happened since then. But in '06, we started adding videos, and um, you know, one thing led to another, and um, now I've got you know 20,000 people from all over the world that are members to the site, and and uh, I've written a cookbook, and we're working on a TV show, and just a lot of things have happened. And the content, like I said, it, it surrounds uh, local foods and seasonal cooking, which in a fast-paced, convenient society is something that not a ton of people practice, but more and more are practicing. Yeah, we've got the whole lo- we've got the whole locavore movement and all like that going on now. And of course, I mean, you just talked about basically homesteading. You guys bought this piece of land, but you couldn't just throw a brand new house on it right away. So you put living quarters in a barn. You kind of bootstrapped up everything you're doing. And, I mean, if you listen to your background, you've, you've cooked all over the United States, and, and I have enough exposure to the restaurant industry to know that a chef with your background can, you can pick a state and go and go find a really great position overnight, but yet you're doing this stuff yourself, and when you took off on your own, you just started to go into this concept you call harvest eating. Why did you choose to do that? What made that attractive to you? Yeah, that's a good point, and uh, we did... Um you know, start pretty meager here on the farm, and it took us a few years to, to save up enough money to build the farmhouse. But what happened during that time was I started to, I found myself as a chef, and, and that's the main thing. I mean, I cooked all types of cuisine, but here in the country I started to meet farmers, and we were getting eggs from the egg lady, the crazy egg lady, and then we were getting raw milk from the 75-year-old dairy guy, and we were getting vegetables from this small farmer and that small farmer, and and we wound up with our own chickens, and then we had dairy goats, and uh, we're buying grass-fed beef from the neighbors and, and pastured pork. And I basically found a style of cooking that really resonated with me, and I kind of just jumped into it, you know, really full force. And that's what I started teaching people, and it made so much sense. And, of course, this local food movement that you mentioned really sprung up kind of right behind me, and it's really helped propel it. But... It's a great way to cook, and it, it makes so much sense uh, even more now with, with uh, what the economy is doing. But it's, uh, it's all about finding foods that are local and in season and cooking them and preserving them and trying to limit the distance that the food comes before it gets on our, on our plate. And, and uh, yeah, I could go out and get a, a big job just about anywhere, but this is super rewarding what I'm doing. I mean, I've got uh, fans and viewers and I think 147 countries that that watch um, watch the videos and check out my recipes, and I've changed some people's lives, which has been cool. I mean, I've never been a guy that, never been an activist or somebody that, you know, honestly went went out of my way a ton to help other people. But just by showing people how to stop eating corporate garbage and cooking uh, for themselves, a lot of people have made lifestyle changes and they've lost a few hundred pounds their whole family has started following my recipes and they're eating seasonally and you know if you go to our our facebook it's uh, facebook.com forward slash harvest eating you'll see loads of people on there interacting and it's been really rewarding and i just what do you think is what do you think has made it work for you because there's a, a billion websites out there from from very talented cooks and chefs there's a million out there that are kind of trying to trying to ride this wave of local eating and you know keeping you trying to eat out your back door as much as you can. But 
for every thousand of them, there's only one or two that actually go anywhere. And yours has been successful. What do you? What's been different about your site? What do you think has made people gravitate towards it the way they have? Well, certainly a lot of luck, a lot of hard work. But one of the things that I noticed early on is uh, being involved in local food and you know the whole slow food movement. Uh, I started to find a lot of people that were also new to it. They didn't have any culinary background and. They would join a CSA, and that's where you, you know, you buy a, a portion of somebody's crop, and every every week you get a basket of food. And these people were just absolutely dumbfounded when they get this basket. First of all, the food don't look like the ones that you get from the store. There's no packaging. They're not pre-cut. And then a lot of different foods that people yeah. aren't used to eating. What do I do with this Swiss chard, holzante, and, and New Zealand spinach stuff? What do I do with this? Right. right? What's this kohlrabi? You know, people <laughs> people would freak out. And what happened, Jack, is they were they were finding my website and saying, "Hey, chef, you know, I, I just bought a a bushel of peaches, or I've got you know twenty pounds of you know garlic, or whatever that they've grown or that they bought. What do I do with it?" So I started to organize the recipes and the videos based on the seasons, because I knew that in the summertime, I'd be getting people looking for zucchini and tomato recipes and corn recipes, and in the winter, they'd want soups and stews, and Super Bowl Sunday, they'd want chili. So I started to organize the recipes around the seasons and putting out the new content during the season in which it was um, you know, appropriate, and then also categorizing the recipes like that. And it's really taken off, and I've just you know, developed a name for myself as, as the seasonal cooking guy with local foods and, and the other thing is a lot of chefs uh, this is a very egotistical business because every yes. chef wants to think <laughs> yes. he's the best chef and uh, we all we all you know have big heads and what that that basically makes people um, it makes the chefs uh, create super fancy recipes and trying to outdo one another and while they may you know get one up on a, a fellow chef the recipes are so complex that the average person just can't keep up. They don't know where to find the ingredients. You know, these guys wear white chef's coats, and they're, you know, really flashy with their French techniques, and it just loses most people. So what I've tried to do, if you go and you check out my cookbook, the Harvest Eating Cookbook, there's very few recipes that have more than five or six steps in the, uh, you know, in the method, and then the ingredient lists are very short. So we don't have recipes that you need to get, you know, caviar, from Russia and all this kind of crazy stuff. And um, my approach is kind of simple, and I'm pretty relaxed. I don't throw food around and bam and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. People, people have just found it um, relaxing, and, you know, I get emails that, that the content's approachable and that they feel confident when they watch me. And, you know, it's more of a, a fluke than anything, but I knew I needed to keep it easy, and that's just helped the thing grow. So why do you, you know, we got you on here on the, on the survival podcast and we talk about everything from the economy crashing to, um, environmental issues to a lot on homesteading, permaculture, gardening, uh, and tons on food, food, uh, storage and, and in eating locally and growing some of your own. This is really kind of a perfect marriage than your style of cooking with kind of the homesteading, you know, modern survival, not the, the, uh, the 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 stereotypical survivalist off in the woods with a box of MREs, but the modern survivalist lifestyle, the modern homesteading lifestyle, it really fits what you're doing well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and one thing that's also helped me is I'm not a guy living in New York City telling a, a homesteader 
you know, how to do things. I live on a farm. You know, I have animals. I've got horses in the field. I, uh, as I said before, I've had chickens and goats. I garden in three different spots on the property. We're avid canners. We dry food. I grow herbs. I do all that so I can speak from a place, you know, of authority that I'm actually doing it. And what's, what's going on? You know, you mentioned the economy. Like I said, I've got a background in economics and finance. And, uh, you know, I don't take it lightly. I, I know the condition that the United States and, quite frankly, the world is in, and it is a pretty tentative spot right now. And my my message and your message is so spot on because if things start to go haywire, people, you know, everybody needs to eat. And you talked about survivalists or homesteaders, people that there's, they're moving back to the country in droves. And when they get here, they need to, to realize that they've got so many things at their disposal. How can they cook with local foods? What can they grow in their area? What do they do when they grow it? What kind of recipes can they make? And it needs to turn into a lifestyle for these people, but they need guidance. So it can't be something that, uh, I mean, people are going to learn things on their own, but it really helps if they've got uh, some guidance and, and somebody showing them the way. And that's kind of what I've done and what I what I hope I continue to do. I think it brings a lot of confidence, too. I mean, because you think about it, a guy moves out to the country, and maybe he even doesn't get huge acres. He gets an acre or two, and he's, he's finally got his garden spot and all, and the whole family's involved. They bring in some livestock. All of a sudden, they got eggs. They got all this crazy stuff. I talk about planting like stuff. Anything that you haven't heard of, if you can plant it and eat it, I'll talk about it. To get this stuff exposed to people, bring diversity back into our diets and all. And, and they go out and they plant all this stuff, and all of a sudden they got Swiss chard growing up as high as their knees, and uh, all this, other, you know, amaranth and all this other stuff. And then they got to figure out, well, what do I do with it? What do I do with the part of it that I can't eat right away? How do I how do I store it? And uh, it's it's one thing to grow food; it's another thing to make sure that you're using it in a way that it tastes really good. Because I, I'll tell you what, there's people out there that would tell you I don't like broccoli, but cook with it the right way and all of a sudden broccoli's not a bad thing and now it's part it's a, it's a wonder food it's part of your diet and if it's if that's the case with broccoli when we look at something like orach right i mean a lot of people are, or wasante is another one that i talk about a lot or, or, or amaranth people are looking at that going what do i what do i do with that and just having someone say look here's what you do with it and demonstrate it i think that probably is a big draw for you and i think that's why i wanted to have you on the show i thought a lot of our audience that's doing this very stuff could gain a lot from taking a look at what you're doing. You know, I agree, and you know, there's so much to that, that goes into the planning of your meals and menus, and trying to diversify what people are eating has been something that I've been uh, really interested in doing. For instance, a newsletter went out today, and one of the recipes is our harvest eating lasagna. Now, this isn't a standard lasagna that's got red sauce and and you know regular ground beef or anything this one's got kale which is a you know a winter and fall crop it's got leeks it has uh, sweet potatoes so some interesting combinations there's no red sauce it uses a a cream sauce or a bechamel sauce and it's got instead of mozzarella cheese it's got mozzarella and gruyere cheese which is a, a sharp swiss cheese and if you show people like you said how to cook and make these foreign food taste good um, they'll come back to them over and over, and it, and it expands their culinary inventory. Like we mentioned the kale. I've got another recipe on the website. It's a sesame kale. And basically I take the kale and I, uh, I steam it briefly, and then from that point it can be frozen for later use, and oftentimes we'll cook.
cook like five or six pounds of it, and that's a massive amount, even though it cooks down. You've that's got a lot, yeah. Bag, yeah, it's a lot. We'll bag it up and freeze it, and then we can take it out. And a great way to cook with it is to make this sesame kale. And you basically fire up your wok, some onions and shallots, a little uh, sesame oil and soy sauce, throw it in there, toss it around, and all of a sudden, uh, this kale, which people kind of think of as a plate garnish, becomes just an unbelievable thing. And, and I've done that with so many different vegetables and, and even meats and things like that where people just wouldn't think to do it. But, um, you know, one thing that scares me is, is if, if the economy does crap out and, and uh, the traditional food systems, I know you talked about it in a recent podcast, but about lettuce, you know, people just take for granted, I've got this lettuce, I'll have a salad, but look at what went into that lettuce coming from another country or from California, the trucking, the handling, the shipping. If that all breaks down, I mean, you need to grow your own food. And growing things like lettuce, I mean, everybody listening right now needs to raise their right hand and say, I swear, Chef Snow, I'm planting a fall garden. Yeah. The easiest yeah. thing possible. You know, get yourself uh, a couple of half whiskey barrels, fill it up with topsoil, and you just spread your, uh, you don't even need to plant them. You just need to broadcast your lettuce seeds over them. Do three, three of those buckets and do one, wait around two weeks, do another one, and then do a third one. And you can have lettuce and, and mix it up. Have some romaine, have some field greens. You can be harvesting lettuce for six, eight months of the year if you do that the right way. Absolutely, and you're, you're talking you're talking exactly the kind of things that we talk about doing. And um, I mean, the, the lettuce alone. You know, you say if, if the whole system breaks down. What I've been trying to say to people, it's not if the whole system breaks down. It's if one component breaks down. We had in in 2008, just two years ago, our truck drivers in this country came a hair's breadth from parking their rigs and saying, sorry, we can't afford to drive. I mean, it was it was very, very close to coming to be. And, and, and what you're saying makes so much sense. We've got to take some responsibility for this stuff ourselves, especially with lettuce. Why are people paying $5 a bag for lettuce that you can grow like a weed in your backyard? And it's so much better when it – I mean, you go out and basically you give the, the, the barrel a haircut, and, and, and those barrels – I mean, you, you cut and come again with that stuff four or five times before you have to replant it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point, and, and your point about the system. Yeah, it's one cog in the wheel goes down, everything's done. And, you know, there's so many of these things that can be done for such little expense, and that's the other thing I'd like to stress. I mean, I've got uh, two gardens that I, that I keep right near the house. I've got a west-facing garden and a south-facing garden. Right now, and I plant things strategically in there, right now I've got peppers, and, and some herbs in my west-facing garden, and they are producing like crazy. I mean, I'm getting hundreds of peppers out of that garden. Some of them I make into hot sauce. Some of them I freeze. Some of them we just eat. And then we're getting herbs, and, you know, I'll have parsley right up through November. And we live in, you know, the mountains of North Carolina. It's not, you know, super yep. hot here. And, and then on the south-facing garden, as the sun starts to head south this time of year, even more and more, I'll get more and more sun over there, so I'll be planting um, this week some more kale, collard greens, carrots, four or five different types of lettuce. You know, and I might spend, Jack, you know, 15 bucks to get all the seeds for a little extra dirt, and then I compost. I've got a compost tumbler. And, you know, before you know it, in a, in a few weeks, we'll be harvesting lettuce. I mean, lettuce comes up in, you know, four to seven days. Yep. It takes a couple more weeks, and you can, like you said, you clip it, it grows right back. So those are things that are easy to do, and then you've got the whole canning and preserving. I mean, 
you need to take advantage of the things that are in your area. And, you know, we're coming into apple season. I mean, it's we've had apples for a few weeks, but now the good apples are starting to be harvested. So cook and eat with apples while they're in season. Do not wait until February because then you've got those dried-out mealy apples. Cook with them now when they're in season and then can them. Make applesauce, and you can can it. It keeps a good long time. You Have you done much with, with uh, dehydration with apples? I'm pretty big on as they start to come in. We'll go to the farmer's markets, and you can buy the ones that have a little bit of bruising on them, for, you know, $5 for a basket. And uh, we have one of those apple peelers that cores, peels, and, and slices, and we'll just start yeah, throwing them in there, and we'll dehydrate those like crazy. And, I mean, you can make apple pie. You can do, well, you can do anything you would do with apples with them. When you rehydrate them, they're not good as a raw product at that point. But for cooking, I mean, they're, they're way more fresh if you dehydrate them now than going out and buying a wax-coated one in February, like you're saying. Yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. And, and another thing that, that I do is I'll get uh, – I'll get apples, and we go, you know, we don't buy them from the store. We go right to the orchard, and we buy tons of them. And then not only will I slice them up and dry them, uh, we make lots and lots of pies. I'll put up probably six, eight, ten quarts of applesauce for use for the holidays and then used with cottage cheese or over yogurt. But then I'll, I'll, um, I'll also put them through my champion juicer, and I'll make my own cider. You can make cider awesome. extremely easy at home. And that stuff freezes super well, so you can have cider all year long just by defrosting it. And those are just some of the things, you know, if you if you learn what's growing around your area and then you start, you know, marking it on your calendar that I'm going to go and I'm going to can some beans today or I'm going to do some tomatoes today, before you know it, your pantry is, is uh, starting to fill up with foods that, you know, you knew exactly where they came from, how they were grown, you put them up yourself, it's, it costs less. It's a good thing for the family. I mean, my, my girls are uh, very involved in the cooking, and they know what's in season. And, you know, when the spring comes around, they know that we're going to go and get strawberries and peaches. And it's just a really good way to live. And I think for all the preppers out there, um, you know, let, let's, let's just pretend that, uh, you know, stuff does hit the fan and, you know, life isn't the way it is now. You're going to have a lot of time on your hands. You're going to get tired of eating uh, canned pork and beans, and you know, I saw you had that canned bacon. While it looked great for uh, BLT, I mean, there's only so much of that stuff to, that you can eat. Yeah, that's an that's an adjunctive ingredient. That is not something you sit down and eat a can of bacon. Uh, on the right. stuff you're talking about growing here, though, I'm pretty big on trying to grow the oddball stuff as long as it grows. And I found that some of it grows better than the conventional crops. Uh, some of the stuff I've got in the ground this year are like uh, I've got ground cherry in the ground. I've got several different varieties of amaranth. I've started – I got really frustrated trying to grow, you know, sweet corn that's real nutrient um, – uh, intensive, and I started growing uh, at the recommendation of uh, Marjorie down at Backyard Food Production some of the older southwestern varieties of like blue corn and, and red corn, and, and they just seem to do much better. Are you kind of big on trying to? I, I grow all the kitchen garden stuff as well, but are you kind of big on trying to grow some things you can't just get out of store just for maybe the novelty, the variety, and, and just bringing it back into to our diets? Yeah, no, absolutely, and I've I've seen some of your stuff where you're um, looking at some of the edible weeds and all that. But yeah, th there's definitely been a big movement. You know, a lot of the seeds that you get now are are messed around with, and if you just search on apples, uh, you can find. You know, there's over seven thousand varieties of apples. It's not just Macintosh and Granny Smith. So I always encourage people to try and plant some of these. Uh, 
these other apples. And, and again, a lot of times they produce much, much better than a uh, supermarket variety because that supermarket variety has got to produce perfect, pretty, you know, shiny apples in order for them to sell. But you may get a much bigger crop, and maybe they don't look perfect. Maybe they're a little oblong, or they may have a little mark or some spots on them. A good example is an apple called the Gold Rush. If you can get some Gold Rush trees and plant those things, they produce the wickedest apple there is. I mean, this is the best cooking apple, the best eating apple, but you'll never find it in the store. So trying to find some of those varieties, whether it be apples or peaches, try and find old timers and search on the Internet for nurseries that have some of these specialized uh, older sort of heirloom seeds, and you can grow great things. And, and uh, I really think you're doing good, good stuff with the ground cherry and some of those edible weeds because, you know, like chickweed, boy, if, if I could sell that stuff, man, I'm a multimillionaire. I got it all over my phone. We eat quite a bit of that. It's pretty good stuff. We're also pretty big. We use a lot of lamb's quarters, uh, planting, all kinds of stuff like that. We've even taken to cultivating it uh, on our property. We don't really plant it in the garden so much because it doesn't need that, but we encourage its growth, and we you know, know where that patch is on our property. Um, I also wanted to ask you real quick, I, I'll have some questions more about, you know, um, ease of cooking, I guess, so to speak. But before we do that, I wanted to real quick, because people that listen to the show are huge into herbs, both for medicinal and culinary use. How big a, how big of a role do herbs play in, in, in your cooking? Uh, a pretty big role, and, and I definitely have all of the culinary herbs. That's another thing. We talked about lettuce. I mean, there's no sense in buying lettuce, but buying herbs is an absolute crime. I mean, I think everybody should have a pretty good selection of herbs, and you can grow those things just about year-round because you can bring them inside in the winter. But I grow parsley, basil, thyme, uh, chives, oregano. Um, what else do I grow? I grow just about every everything yeah. herb there is. And those are big in cooking, and they also help to really bring flavors to foods and then, you know, spices are really important. I mean, we, we actually have spices. We've got organic spice blends that we sell on our website. And what I've done is I've blended these things together to work with certain foods. So rather than having to be a genius and decide which one to pick, like we've got one that we call grilled chicken. And it's been designed specifically to go on grilled chicken. People eat the heck out of grilled chicken. We've got one that's uh, formulated for roast chicken. You put some olive oil on the chicken put the seasonings on there, and you've got like a restaurant-quality meal. And those are the type of things that uh, really encourage people to do because it's so easy to get in a rut with your cooking. Blend in some herbs. Blend in some aromatics, and all of a sudden things taste better. You're going to want to try new things like that and uh, definitely keep that stuff in your pantry. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be uh, offering our uh, spice and herb mixes in, in some vacuum-packed situations that way people can put them in the pantry and store them for a long time but that's all um that's you know some of the secret sauce that us chefs do is you know cooking with herbs and cooking with a little bit of wine and things like that really really helps spice things up what i've learned i have a friend that's an amateur chef and he's a really good friend of mine he's actually like my business partner neil franklin and one of the things he taught me was that a lot of the times with seasoning and things like that and herbs and spices it's not just using them and not just their amounts and i think this is why people need to watch your videos it's that when you're making a certain dish there's certain times to add certain things in the cooking process 
It's not just it's not just throw it all on there. And sometimes it is. I mean, some things like you're talking about, you throw these seasonings and spices on this chicken and you grill it and, and you're good to go. But some things that you cook, there's you know adding things right at the end so that a lot that it's not overcooked and things like that. And I think that keeps things fresh as well. But what I've noticed with you, and I really, really like, because what I see on the Food Network and all of these things on cable TV, and I see people trying to do, and I talk to people when they're cooking for, like, a group of people coming over, is they try to emulate restaurant food. And there's, you, know, you just use restaurant-quality food, but there's a difference between restaurant-quality and restaurant food. I, I, from my exposure to the industry, I know that there are certain things about – the equipment that you use in a restaurant, the number of people that might touch a dish before it comes to your plate, regardless if it's one chef that's the the artist behind it, that people just are not, it's not possible to emulate some of the things that you get in a very nice restaurant in the home, but there's this alternative way, which I guess for most people, instead of trying to be a chef, is they follow a chef and become kind of a gourmet cook. And you've really done a good job of kind of driving that message home, maybe not in those words, but could you maybe just tell some people, as a guy that worked in these kitchens, why some of the stuff they try to make, they're just not going to, it's just not going to be that way, and that's why they need to simplify their approach as you're teaching. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point, and people don't realize that, for instance, most stoves at home, they just can't produce the BTUs that we have in the restaurants. And I'm lucky enough, I, I uh, work with a company called Le Conch, and they have uh, these beautiful French ranges. I've got two of them, one in the barn, one in the house. And these things will crank out, like one of my burners, 18,000 BTUs. That's almost as much as somebody's entire stove. So what that means is when I put a skillet on there, I can get this thing hot enough so when I, put, when I lay down a piece of, uh, you know, a halibut steak, for instance, or a piece of beef, the pan is not going to cool down, and that's the difference in the meat looking grayish and kind of uh, boiled almost or having that incredible nice brown seared crust. And there's, there's certain dishes like that that you just can't do, like wok cooking is very difficult to do at home because you're just not going to have the heat that they have in the restaurant. And there's plenty of dishes like that that, that just require equipment or um, prep time and things like that that people at home don't have. So what I've tried to do is if you look on my website, you're going to find a lot of comfort food. And what I've tried to do is update some of this comfort food. Like we do a shepherd's pie. And a lot of my cooking, while it's earthy and exciting, it's healthy as well. We use a lot of vegetables. And, I mean, there's a ton of vegetarians and vegans that follow my website. But just trying to take things, for instance, one of the things that really got me started was taking macaroni and cheese and and bringing it up to a, a great level where people could do it at home. And, and literally thousands of people make that recipe. I believe it's in my cookbook. I can't quite remember. But just doing things like that, cooking with comfort food and using some classical techniques that, that people can do, but not basing it solely on what equipment they have. I try not to handicap people because that always... You know, be, to be honest, it pisses me off when you look at a cookbook and they're giving you recipes for, like, sous vide cooking or mm -hmm. things that you just know 99% of the people don't have. Or, or, like, certain pots, like like showing people a terrine. Yeah, terrine is great, but 
you need a, a terrine, and, and those things can cost like $150 to get a good French terrine. So I, I think that you that just you just stuff. let something go in there that I think a lot of people might have missed, you know, because they, they maybe don't focus enough. And I think it's something that people need to understand. You talked about how hot you can get your skillet, and people think, well, I get my skillet really, really hot, like they say at home, right? And I throw my meat in there, and instead of braising and getting that nice color to it, it smokes and it sticks. That has to do with the fact that when you drop that piece of meat in that skillet, the temperature drops too fast, right? Right. That's Absolutely. what that's what kills that. And I think most, I mean, I see people cooking on, and I always got frustrated because I'd watch Emro and all these other guys, and they like throw it in there and bam and whatever, and like if they throw it, it's like screaming hot. They throw it in there and it just and it doesn't stick. And I like I get mine all hot. I throw it in there, and the next thing I know, I'm spending four hours trying to clean the pan. And you know, yeah. Neil was the guy that explained that to me. Um, and he also said something else I'd like maybe you to comment on. He said there's like, as you start to learn these things, there's certain techniques that once you learn them, they're empowering. Now I can take that and use that somewhere else. So like two things he taught me about, and I guess I was even doing it without knowing what they were called and knowing how flexible it was. One's a mirepoix and one is uh, what they call Holy Trinity. Can you maybe talk about those and maybe some other things like that, that once you have that, now you can go off and start pulling things together and, and having more flexibility and empower yourself. Yeah, those are great points. Um, you've definitely done your homework, Jack. And you know, like you mentioned, some of those techniques. You, know, you throw a piece of meat in a pan. There's there's some there's one quick thing to note. You can't take a, a steak that's 37 degrees out of the refrigerator and throw it in that pan. Like the tip would be, let the thing come up to room temperature. So those are the types of yeah. little things that I constantly throw into my presentation, and that's what builds people's skills. But on top of it, like you mentioned, you know, Maripois and all that, there's definitely lots of little things that I would call an entry into the harvest eating lifestyle that then people can go wild with it. One thing is a pan sauce. I've got a recipe on the website and in the cookbook. It's a chicken breast with a cider mustard uh, pan sauce. Now, the technique here is a simple pan reduction, and people have no idea how to do this. And a lot of times, let's say you, let's say you sear a piece of fish in a skillet or a chicken breast in a skillet. Most people are taking the chicken breast out. They take the skillet, you know, it's got all this burnt-on stuff or brown bits stuck to the bottom of the pan. You know, they're throwing it in the dishwasher or in the sink, and they, they go on and eat the chicken, but they're missing a critical component. Now, that pan sauce, let's just say you're doing those chickens. When that chicken, when it's cooked, you can take that thing out, put it on a warm plate in the oven, and all of a sudden you can crank the heat on the bottom of that pan. You've got all those brown bits. Now you can put a pat of butter in there, some minced up shallots and garlic that you already had made because you were going to plan to do this pan sauce. You throw that in there for a minute with a whisk, whisk it around for a second, and then you put in, you know, maybe let's just say a half a cup or three quarters of a cup of apple cider and you deglaze the pan and you really scrape with the whisk and it's going to come right to the boil because the pan is so hot and you scrape up every one of those bits and those will come up into the sauce and then you boil that because you've got a wide skillet. It's going to evaporate really fast. Boil that sucker really hard. And when it starts to come down, turn it off, season it with salt and pepper, throw in two um, pats of cold butter, and swirl it around. And that cold butter will emulsify. And all of a sudden, you've got a pan sauce. You could put a little Dijon mustard in there. You could do the same thing with a steak with red wine and butter and shallots and herbs. And all of a sudden, a pan that was just going to go into the sink, turns into this incredible pan sauce. 
you put it on on your meat or your chicken or your fish, and your wife or your husband thinks you know you're a rock star, and it's just one technique that you can use you know hundreds of times in so many different ways. And I try to teach people all that stuff. You know, same thing with a vinaigrette. I mean, once you're once you understand how to make a vinaigrette, you're going to throw that craft. Junk ranch dressing out the window. Especially when you can infuse it with your own herbs out of your own garden. And, you know, here's the thing. I, this is why I love entrepreneurs because you can hear the passion for this stuff in your voice when you're talking about it. But as you're talking about making this pan sauce, I'm thinking about all the preppers we have out there. You know, keep chickens or ducks or rabbits and harvest a few of them every year for meat for the home. And if you're going to take all the time, and basically, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but when you when you whack a chicken and, and, and bring them in the house and pluck them and eat them, you're eating your friends. I mean, it really comes down to that, you know. I mean, it's part of being a carnivore and part of the homesteading lifestyle, but if you're going to take this chicken and, and, and uh, end his life, and it's probably a much more fulfilling life than he would have had, you know, in a, a commercial farm, you might as well give him a noble end. And, and that sounded like a pretty damn noble end right there, because you took something that most people discard, and you actually ended up using it as one of your key ingredients, which was the pan the food was cooked in. Yeah, that's that's, that's totally right. And you know, we we get a lot of uh, a lot of animals that are that are raised naturally, whether it be pastured pork or you know grass fed beef and all that. And and then when we get them in the home, you know, not only do we make sure that we use these great techniques to make them taste good, but we don't waste things. Like millions of people every night tonight, they're going to be going out. They're buying a rotisserie chicken on the way home from work. They're, they're going to eat that chicken, and then they're going to throw the carcass in the trash. They can take that, put it into a stock pot, add a few stalks of celery. Just break it up by hand. You don't need any fancy you know, knife work. Throw in a few carrots, a bay leaf, maybe a couple peppercorns. Bring that up to a, a quick simmer, and then don't let it boil, but let it simmer for about 40 minutes. And then strain all that stuff out and let it cool off for about 15 minutes and then put that in the refrigerator. Now you've got, you know, probably two quarts of unbelievable homemade chicken stock that you just made with something that you were going to throw away and 50 cents worth of vegetables. Now you don't have to buy that canned stock. Now you don't have to buy that, you know, just chemical laid in little cubes of, uh, you know, bouillon. You've got your own stuff. You can make a great pan sauce. You can make... Um, a sauce to go inside of a chicken pot pie. You can make chicken soup. There's so many uses for things like that and, you know, not wasting food and treating things. You know, the, the other thing, people get these great steaks and then they don't know how to cook them or they cook them to death. It's just such a shame when you've got such great ingredients. Yeah, you know, what you just described with the chicken, that's something we do every year with our Thanksgiving turkey. We'll have out the obligatory plate of uh, carrots and celery, you know, uh, and it never all gets eaten because everybody's stuffing their face with, you know, pumpkin pie and things that you wait till Thanksgiving to actually abuse your body with. So there's always a lot of that left over. You have this great big turkey carcass. And we just take the pan of the celery and carrots and the turkey carcass and throw them into a stock pot, and that's ex a little bit of garlic and salt, and we end up with that same result, that big pot of of turkey stock, and like you said, you can do so many things with it. Um, it it's, it's really cool to hear you talk about that. Uh, I know people out there are probably getting hungry. I'm glad I ate before this interview, but, it, it, you know, with all this great stuff, but could you drop maybe one more recipe on people, something something really kind of cool and different uh, as we get ready to start wrapping up here? Yeah, let me uh, let me give you something that's pretty uh, pretty timely with where we are at the end of 
tomato season. I'm going to give you a recipe. I call it a tomato fondue. Now, go and get yourself um, some really fresh tomatoes beautifully and let them be, you know, fully ripe, nice red ones. Don't get any of those garbage hothouse pink tomatoes. Get some real ripe tomatoes. And what you want to do with those things, bring some water to a boil and then core the tomato. Take out the little stem part, core it out with a paring knife, and then take that knife and make a little X about maybe a quarter inch deep in the bottom of the tomato. Slice one way and then slice the other way, making an X or like a cross. And then take that and maybe drop around 10 of these tomatoes into that boiling water. Leave them in the water for about 30 seconds and then take them out and put them into a, um, a little bowl that's filled with ice water. Cool those things off right away and then take the tomatoes over a big bowl and um, crush them with your hands and drop them into the bowl. Then you, what you want to do is take around two to three cloves of garlic and mince up the garlic really fine. Throw that in there and then put in a healthy dose of some really good extra virgin olive oil. Put that in there and then decide on what herb you like. Maybe it's some minced up fresh rosemary. Maybe it's some basil. Maybe it's some chives. Whatever it might be, you take that substance and tuck it uh, into the refrigerator for a day or so. And then you've got this tomato fondue that's super flavorful with that oil and the garlic and the herbs and the tomatoes. You grill yourself a nice steak and put a few tablespoons of that tomato fondue on there. And then the oil will start to run out and the garlic, you know, when it hits the hot steak, it'll start to really get that smell going. It's such a great recipe for, for something like that. Or you can put, cook some pasta and take a four or five scoops of this tomato fondue, throw it into the cooked pasta with a pat of butter and some good Romano cheese, toss it together, and you've got just an unbelievable uh, little pasta dish. So that tomato fondue is really handy. And how simple. I mean, that's, that's something yeah. that anybody could do, and that is taking the simple that we use every day and being creative with it. That's that's a big part of why I wanted to have you on. So thanks for sharing that one, folks. You, can, you Folks, you can blow away people, I guarantee you, with that simple recipe. Um, I also want to let people know you've started doing a podcast as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I've uh, actually got two. I've got the Harvest Eating Podcast and then also the Thoughtful Harvest Podcast. Thoughtful Harvest is a new food brand that I've recently started. And what I do is I buy ingredients from small farms and artisan producers and cheese makers, then I fashion them into finished products and, and we sell those. We've got some pasta sauces that people can check out at thoughtfulharvest.com. But the Harvest Eating Podcast, I try to take all the things that, you know, we've been talking about. Like I think our, actually our, our episode up right now is, is uh, on survival food stores. I actually listened to that. You, yeah, you did a recipe on, on survival. That was pretty cool. And the next one, we'll be talking about planting a winter garden and giving people some ideas and inspiration and encouragement to, to plant a garden. So we just talk about all the tenets of harvest eating and what things you need to be focused on to, to kind of live this lifestyle. And you've got kind of like a membership thing going on at your site, too, where people can financially support the site, and they get a pretty good return for that, don't they? What, what is, what's that all about? Yeah, well, we've, we've spent, Jack, about, I don't know, five years now building up the um, – the site there's you know over 800 recipes probably 300 uh, videos on there and what we do is we basically give everything away for free but the recipe is behind the members wall you can watch the video let's say it's a chicken parmesan you can watch the the, re, uh, the video right there but if you want the recipe we ask people to, to support the site and become a premium member and that unlocks 
everything and all of the recipes because some people, they just need those exact details. And I've tried to give as much away as possible, but we do um, have those recipes locked up, but it's pretty cheap, like eight ninety nine a month, or if you want to join for a year, it's like 69 bucks for the year. It comes out to like $0.20 cents a day, and that really helps us to continue to uh, produce these videos because if you watch a few of the videos, you'll see that they're, they're not just somebody with a flip cam. I mean, these are two-camera shoots with professional lighting, and it costs a load of money. So we, uh, we, we do ask for support, and we've got, we've got members all over the world that, that um, you know, are, are focused on our stuff, so it's been pretty cool. I think you're doing something very similar to what I do, and that is, you know, we give away 99% of the content for free, and part of supporting the site is not just what you get in addition, it's do you think you're getting value out of what we're bringing to you every day? And I think, you know, that's kind of a new economic model that I see going on out there, and I think the only people that don't like it are the people that don't really bring good stuff to the table every day, because if you bring it every day... People turn around and they're happy to support that because, like you said, you're not just talking about how to cook. You're changing lives. You're you're telling people how to live healthier, more fulfilling lifestyles with their cooking. I mean, we all eat three times a day, so that's a, a pretty awesome way to affect people. And you've got a book out you'd mentioned as well. That's called Harvest City. Can you tell us about that and you know where people can get a copy? Yeah, that's uh, that that took me a long time to produce. I I, uh, I worked with Running Press on that. A you know regular publisher. And uh, we, we put out the Harvest Eating Cookbooks. got over 200 recipes in it, about 100 photos, and that's available anywhere you can buy books. Uh, the best place is Amazon because you can get it uh, pretty cheap on there. But it's loaded with photos, and that was the one thing that I wanted to make sure that people had um, a lot of photos to really entice them. And it tells you everything about Harvest Eating. I mean, I wrote the book. I didn't use a ghostwriter. And it tells you all about the lifestyle, about canning, about my background, and uh, we're getting some tremendous reviews uh, about the cookbook. People are really liking it, and it's 320 pages, I believe. So it's not some, you know, frail little book that someone pumped out in six months. I mean, this thing took a long time. My heart and soul is in that book, and it's a great resource. It's the type of book that people leave out because it's really pretty. Awesome, awesome. You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll make sure I put a link to that, to your website, to your podcast, everything in the show notes today so that people can uh, check all that stuff out. And, folks, I really encourage you to uh, to definitely do that, to check out Keith's site and to check out Keith's uh, you know, website and his podcast and his membership and all these great things. I wanted to, um, real quick, uh, just give you the opportunity here maybe to give people some final thoughts on um, eating locally, how that helps with prepping, and why doing things like learning to preserve food is important to to all of us going forward because you're in touch with the it's not so much that I'm saying or you're saying that terrible things are ahead but one thing we know is ahead is constant is change and we're at a point of dynamic change and the more independent you are the more you're going to be able to adapt to that change so how does everything we're talking about today kind of fit in with that well, one of the things, over the last 15 or 20 years, people have forgot about cooking, they forgot about growing, and they listened to corporate America, and they basically went down a rat hole to eating all of this junk food, and nobody knows how to cook anymore, nobody can fend for themselves, and look at the result. We've got a very overweight and unhealthy population. It's just not sustainable. People need to 
change their lifestyle, learn how to cook, learn what's in season around them, and teach their kids the same thing. And, and I can guarantee you that if you take these principles that I'm talking about, and you don't need to go full bore into it, just do three or four things. You know, grow your own lettuce. Start start cooking some chicken and, and put a pan sauce on it. You start doing these little things, all of a sudden it starts to build up and you, and you start increasing your culinary inventory. You become more excited about food. You start to save money. You're supporting your local farmers. Your family's getting healthy. It really is just a, it's a smart way to go. And unfortunately, I do feel pretty confident that the, the old method of uh, convenience and um, you know, grabbing that food on the way home, that's probably not going to be here forever. I think people need to, to uh, make a point to learn how to cook, get back to the land, and, and make a difference. And, you know, we were, we were chatting before the show, and you said that you had uh, some of these sauces that you'd put together kind of a package, a special deal for the audience if they wanted to try out some of your stuff. Yeah, I, um, if you could put a link to that, Jack, I, I'll send uh, a case, and these sauces... They'll last about two years if you put them in your pantry out of the sun and, you know, don't leave them in a 110-degree car or anything. They'll last about two years, and these sauces are, uh, like I said, I've sourced all the, the best ingredients from the United States. Our motto is grown in the USA. Our olive oil comes from a farm in California. Our herbs come from a small family farm in uh, Illinois. Everything is locally sourced in America, top quality. I put these sauces together. And I'll send, for people that want to put these in their pantry, a whole case. It's 12 26-ounce jars, and for 85 bucks, I'll ship it right to your house. And you can put that away in your, in your pantry, uh, eat a few jars now because you're going to love it. But then, you know, if, if, uh, if things do get tough, instead of uh, eating those MREs, you can open a bottle of sun-dried tomato and rosemary thoughtful harvest pasta sauce and put it on some dried pasta and have a great meal. So that's... Uh, that's a special gift to your listeners. It would cost more, certainly, with the shipping, but we'll throw in the shipping and, and uh, send a case right to their house for 85 and, bucks. And is that a case of a sauce variety, or is that multiple varieties, or what is that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll mix it up so they'll get six jars of each flavor. Very in cool. In another couple of weeks, we're going to be adding a third flavor, which is champagne and tarragon. We use, actually, sparkling wine from California. But beautiful sauces, really high-quality and the reviews have been pretty stunning so far. We've had them available about two months now. Well, I'll tell you what, you'll get you'll, you'll get an order from me today. That sounds like a deal, folks. I, I think you should check that out. I'm I'm happy to do that. And, I mean, otherwise, I'll give you, you know, one more chance here if you have any final thoughts. Uh, it's about time we wrap the show up. But, man, I really appreciate you coming on today, and it's amazing to me how much this message uh, is is really getting out there. How many people like yourself are taking different components of the self-sufficiency message and saying, hey, this is something that's important. We need to bring this back to America. Yeah, no doubt. I recently did uh, some work for the Ball Jar Company. I was their spokesman at a, at a, at a canning event. And uh, that company, for instance, is growing You know, in the triple digits a year. People are getting back to canning, and people are moving back to the land and really starting to do these things. And uh, I think it's important. It's a lot of fun. I know it can help people out. And uh, also, while I've got you, you know, thanks to you, Jack, for putting together. Uh, I only came across you, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, and there is just an incredible amount of resources there. Because when people make this move, I mean, it takes it takes knowledge and it takes, you know, trying to find somebody who's done some of these things. And 
that's certainly what I'm trying to do. And, and uh, you know, I've been uh, trying to work my way backwards in your podcast. I think I'm back to number uh, episode 509. So uh, I've got a lot to learn, but I appreciate what you do. And, and I definitely thank everyone for their attention today and, and any support. And uh, I wish everyone really well. Well, cool, man, and I'd love to have you back on again in the future. I know my, uh, my listeners are going to want to hear from you again. Uh, so thank you again for being here today. And, folks, uh, I, you know, I, I try to bring you the best guests I can get. I don't bring uh, a guest on a week or anything like that. I might do two interviews a month, and this is the type of person I want to bring on, people that are actually out there making a difference. So, again, thank you, Keith, for being on the show. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today with Keith Snow. Uh, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast, Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouched for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything... Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.